Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for today's podcast is Ashton Parsons, and I have a confession to make. I normally write out my introductions, and then I read them back, and I record them over a number of takes, but I feel like Ashton would want me to freestyle this introduction for him, so here we go. Ashton Parsons is an absolute rock star in every sense of the word. He's mixed so many incredible bands from so many different varieties and genres, from Fifth Harmony to Disturbed to Zach Wilde and everything in between. Ashton's done it. He's seen it all. He's been everywhere. It was such a pleasure to talk to Ashton on this podcast. He was informative. He was entertaining. He's so professional, and his stories were absolutely fascinating. I really claim that I don't have favorite podcasts, but this one ranks right up there at the very top. So I hope you'll appreciate it. I hope you'll enjoy it. Now let's get to it and learn all about Ashton. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I am joined today by Ashton Parsons. Ashton, I believe you're talking to me from uh, the Michigan area. Hi, from the other side of the lake. Yeah. Yeah, that lake is a bastard, isn't it? Like, if you go straight across, it's an hour or something to get to you. Uh, if I go around it, it's like six hours. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I've been looking at buying some road cases, and a couple of people in Wisconsin, yourself included, have uh, have hit me up, and I am went to look. There is a ferry, but I don't think it's operating, and... I know the lake levels on this side have been very high. There's been a lot of flooding up on the uh, northwest side of the state of Michigan. Um, so I don't think it's operating. I don't think I have that luxury. Yeah, I uh, I was mixing a show or supposed to mix a show with Stitched Up Heart last summer uh, in Flint. And I was like, oh, that's not too far away. And then I started plotting it out. And I'm like, that's a nine-hour drive if I don't take the ferry. If I take the ferry, it's like $150 each way. And it shaves, you know, like three hours off the trip. So yeah. I ended up driving around the long way, and that was not fun. Well, you also wind up with tolls and stuff in Chicago. You got to drive through Gary, Indiana, and all that too. So wait, <laughs> you're saying Gary's not very fun? You know, it doesn't look fun. I can't say for certain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so sorry for that unusual uh, introduction and getting started there, but. Uh, <laughs> I do get sidetracked about our lakes, you know, (laughs) Yeah, that's all we've got. Right. Um, (laughs) So, Hey, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. We were chatting beforehand. Uh, We have a couple of mutual friends in the, in the industry. Um, So it's a real pleasure to have you on and I'm excited to get to learn a little bit about you. Um, So with that, would you mind taking us back to the early days of Ashton uh, when you first got turned on to music? Uh, were you playing an instrument? What what got you interested in music, and how did you end up where you're at today? I think I was uh, predestined to be a musician in some way because my mom, while I was uh, uh, 
a fetus would go to concerts. And uh, I guess the one that really stood out to me was when she went to the uh, sort of traditional folk Irish band, The Chieftains, and I started pounding away inside of her stomach. Uh, I had a bunch of little toy drums and stuff growing up. And then finally, I got my own drum set and all that. Joined bands not that long after. Some were really good. Some were awful. Started recording. Uh using just a little Logitech microphone that came with my dad's desktop back in the day. Um, And we would go pay somebody at a local studio to record and we'd get the CDs back and they wouldn't sound like our favorite band at all. And uh, I started going into forums and stuff like that, all free YouTube. I wish I had YouTube back then. and so, yeah, I started expanding my knowledge a bit, figuring out what to do. And eventually, with my paper out money, bought a, an early interface, a Aardvark Q10, which is just a eight-channel preamp with a PCI card, um, and started recording in my parents' basement. And that kind of set me up on the path that I am currently stalled on due to coronavirus. But, you know break once in a while <laughs> exactly yeah thank you virus um so you started out in the studio land um were you did you do any uh school training or anything like that for studio work or was it just more uh hobby enthusiast type things it started off hobbyist um when i graduated high school i had done a couple higher end tours um or at least filled in on a couple uh both of my parents were flight attendants for American Airlines. And at one point, um, my dad met John Legend in the very infancy of his career. And through whatever charm he put on, he mentioned that I played drums and they invited him and myself to come to their show in Detroit. And myself and the drummer got along really well while building his kit. And they wound up putting me to work that day. One of the one tech they did have couldn't go to Canada. And so 16-year-old Ashton went across the border and, and did a couple days' worth of work with them. And that sort of lit the spark for touring for me. Uh, but I that was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. So needed to go back to school. By the time I graduated, most of the people that were working for that band were not with the band anymore. So my in was gone. So I went and started looking at recording schools around the country, finding that a lot were still teaching tape. And this this was um, 2006. So I was really turned off by that idea. I thought it was not what was happening in the industry. I, I, so I saw the writing on the wall. Um, and lo and behold, the local community college was teaching Pro Tools. It had a dedicated Pro Tools class. They were bringing in professionals from professional engineers from Los Angeles and New York and around the area to teach the various courses. And I said, that's the one. So I did that, did the course twice because uh, doing it twice would result in uh, a BA. And um, each 
each time I did it, I had a different set of teachers on some of the courses. They also had a live portion, which really set me up for, uh, for this because I realized how much I enjoyed the challenge of it. Um, and yeah, so I learned a lot from that. Some stuff was confirmation of what I was already doing. Some of it was, well, I've been doing that completely wrong. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I've, I do have some schooling. I I would sit, counter that that uh, is not the reason for me being in the industry, nor is it um, a majority of where I've gained my knowledge from, but I'm sort of somebody that learns by doing rather than, uh, you know, having it shown to me. Yeah. Well, there's definitely something to be said for some of that, you know, formal training, but it does, you do have to have a motor. I totally agree, you know, to want to go out and do it. Uh, I know lots of people have gone to school and have never applied anything practically and they're sort of stuck, you know, is probably would have been better had they never gone to school. So I totally get it. I do have some friends that are in that same boat. I wonder you know. if we, I wonder if we know them <laughs> together. <laughs> it's a possibility. Did you, wow, that's crazy. So your introduction to live sound and touring was drum teching as a 16 year old for John Legend. That's, that's pretty yeah, cool. That, it was such a weird looking back on it, you know, that would, I would never let some Brando go and do that, you know, but they, they were really charmed by my dad. Uh, He's a he's a New Zealand born Irishman, so he's got. But he's lived in the in the United States for forever, and so he's got this crossover accent, and he's very he can be very charming. And the background singers and the tour manager liked him a lot. <laughs> so, uh, and then yeah, the drummer Swiss Chris, he and I just sat and talked shop, and he's like, and he's this big Swiss guy, and he's like, right, kid, not bad, everything's where it should be. Great job, but he's he's from New York, so he's outrageous personality. And uh, yeah, so we did that for a couple of days, and then I'm, they were back in the states, and they let me go home. And it was fun. I you know I got my ass handed to me. They you know going in thinking I'm ruling the world, and I nope, shut down. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it was definitely like a cool introduction, and I'm still in touch with some of them. Their their bass player Kenny plays for. Uh, was Khalifa pretty constantly. Um, uh, Kenny was the only one that was in there and Swiss doesn't tour anymore. Sharif doesn't. Anyway, it was, uh, it was, it was a fun time. Uh, that's, that's really, that's an awesome story. I'm, I'm super glad you shared that. Um, do you dabble in any other instruments other than drums or did you, have you pretty much stuck with drums? Uh, no, I play, I'll figure out anything you hand me. Um, drums, bass, guitar. I took about five years of piano lessons, and the piano lessons came because my piano teacher wouldn't let me touch a guitar until I learned at least two years of piano, which in the end, I'm glad he did because the, the, the understanding of where the notes are and how everything interacts and applying that to a, to a stringed instrument definitely crossover. Um, I'm not at all a virtuoso on on guitar but i can get it going my band's new album i play probably 70 percent of the guitar my little brother was the was the guitar guy for sure and he um i can only hope to be as good as he is um 
he can play anything he wants and he's which is nuts but we um we still are creating music and he lives in new zealand so thank god for the internet you know he just sends me the files i send him files back and forth and we we, we get it done yeah it's crazy how many uh albums and recordings are produced you know quote unquote virtually with people in literally different ends of the world but yeah technology is is amazing remember dial up <laughs> yeah i remember bulletin boards so when you mentioned going on forums to learn oh, yeah. stuff yeah, uh, it was like it was like usenet stuff for me <laughs> yeah got it yeah yeah oh i could go we could do a separate discussion just about uh forums in the the good old days and oh yeah yeah youtube has been a blessing and a curse because there was something to be said about sort of learning on your own from a forum you know like somebody would demonstrate something or, or you'd ask a question and they'd give you just enough of an answer where yeah you really had to dive in and, and go from there and yeah read the thread view and all that good stuff so yeah and then you you try to skip ahead and then miss what what bullet point you were at or something oh it's terrible but yeah no there there's a youtube video for everything now so <laughs> yeah maybe well speaking of which maybe i should get the podcast on youtube i am probably missing out on a, an audience there so i'll have to look into that yeah there you go i wonder if there's a forum that will talk about how i can get this onto youtube I'm sure there is <laughs> cool um so let's talk a little bit about your uh professional life now in the live sound industry your resume is insane uh you've worked with so many groups and groups i was talking to my girlfriend yesterday about you and uh, you mix a lot of heavy stuff. We're both really into heavy bands, but you, you've worked with guys like Periphery, Black Label Society, uh, Anthrax, Disturbed, um, Animals as Leaders, uh, and, and I could go on and on and on. But uh, you've worked with Steel Panther and uh, Nick Rucker and Alex Marquides. I think Alex was filling in for you on that fall tour because you yep. were working, you were doing a different gig, right? Yeah, my my schedule didn't work out, so I called uh, Alex, and uh, he was free. And he, I knew basically when I knew I wasn't free, I I thought to myself, well, who's going to fit into this wacky camp, Marquides? And he did. He fit right in. The guys loved him right away. So. Uh, I left him with a good show file, which he has since expanded on and made even better. And uh, yeah, he's uh, it's it's sort of their their the golden triangle of of monitor guys for them because they have uh, Patty Krause in Europe most of the time, myself, uh, Alex Marquides, and then they also have uh, Matt Andrande, who has been their guy forever. Matt is doing his thing in in LA, um, but. I remember what the first time I met Steel Panther. They, it was after uh, it was a Kill Switch Engage tour that Alex and myself were actually on. Uh, Luke Buckby was mixing Kill Switch at the time. I was mixing The Word Alive and Miss May. I then this is eight years ago now, and we were doing one of those matinee shows in Las Vegas, House of Blues, and we get the trailer loaded. I had a pretty big beard at the time. Go to front of house and uh, singer calls me out. He's like, hey, there's the there's a singer from Kill Switch Engage. Get up here and sing with us. And I'm like, okay. 
that was my first introduction to those guys. And anytime since then, I would just go and, and bother Matt and, and Nick and hang out with them. And, and then at some point, Matt wasn't free and he said, hey, you want to come and do it? The guys like you. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Felt like that was one of those moments where I was like, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> They're uh, they're really cool guys. Um, I was I was so floored by how welcoming and how just really genuinely nice they are. So um, they they literally have no no ego really. They um um I've gotten happy birthdays from them, texts and stuff. Um and yeah, they'll just randomly text me for things or vice versa. They're they're like. They're solid dudes for sure. Yeah, they uh, they they're so talented, uh, but they're also so unbelievably nice and just genuine. Yeah. They're they're awesome. The talent the talent spewing out of them is insane. Sound checks were always so much fun because they started as a cover band, and so their repertoire is incredible for '80s hair metal, late '70s hard rock. Somebody will just fly high, Michelle. Let's go. Then bam, they do it. It's crazy. The the Pro Tools files I have from Soundcheck are fun to listen to sometimes. Oh, I'd pay money to uh, just look over your shoulder and listen to those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, it was always fun because they were so fast at Soundcheck. They would, they, you know, Nick and Alex would do line check, and I want to talk a little bit about that process uh, with you in just a minute here. But they would do a quick line check. They would do a little bit of virtual playback. And then the guys would come out, they would play like one cover song, like you, like you said, and that was always super fun because you were like, oh dude, that's such a great song. And then, you know, their take on it and then they do a ballad and then they were done. And then, you know, they'd give the stage to us, which as direct support, that's unheard of. You know, we, we always had an hour plus to sound check and I needed every minute of that time. So <laughs> I definitely need to send those guys Christmas cards and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. They're quick. They're quick. I mean... Yeah, and with Disturbed, they're quick too. So half the time they don't sound check either. So we got, we'll get the stage. Uh, myself and and my tech will uh, pin the stage and virtual sound check out front. Tap through everything. Maybe a quick little jam with the techs, and then we're out and let lighting finish their focus and video and whatnot and pyro test, and then. Two hours for direct support usually. So wow, can we? Uh, can you get stitched on one of those tours? Because I'd love to have two hours too. <laughs> That'd be fun. That'd be a good time. Except that's above my pay grade. So, but I'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah, coming from the bar band in uh, club level, you know, uh, guerrilla warfare, uh, where I spent the majority of my sound career. You know, every most bands treat sound check as rehearsal at that level, which is really. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, can you talk a little bit about your interaction? Uh, let's let's just jump into Steel Panther here uh, because it's familiar to me, and we were just talking about them. But when you're working with Nick on a show and you're you're getting ready to go out, um, what sort of responsibilities do you guys split between the two of you? I know Nick is production manager uh, typically, and then like when you get to the venue and the stage is getting set up, what are you doing during the day as uh, as uh, a tour member with Steel Panther, what are you responsible for? Are you doing RF coordination? Uh, just take us through some of that, if you don't mind. So Steel Panther's Nick Rucker's baby. He has been involved in that operation for 12 plus years. Um, 
he basically has it down to a science. We have a bus trailer and nothing, there's hardly anything in it. It's two uh, consoles, one half Cadillac from Claire, a couple racks, a drum kit, which is all in individual bags, and a couple guitar backpacks and some pedal boards. And it's all, takes 30 seconds to pack that trailer. So on a day-to-day, what's happening is once the drums are up, uh, usually Nick is the one helping set up the kit and tuning it and going into that. While he's doing that, I am getting Monitor World built. And once that's built, we'll do RF coordination, make sure everything's good, swap out batteries, and then, or at least check to make sure that battery levels are sufficient for sound check because sometimes they like to jam. Uh, clean out, clean out the in-ears, which is the ugly part of, of the gig. Do you have a vacuum uh, or are you in there digging? Uh, both. I, I start with, start with the digging and then pull out the Jody vac and suck out all the other goodness that's out of reach. <laughs> there, there are probably some rabid fans that would pay money for the contents of that. It's, it's, it's part of my job. I don't like it. And, and I really get uh, a huge hefty dose of respect when I first start working with an artist and then get their in-ears back and see how clean they are. I try not to judge people, but the, the healthiness of their ear canals is something I didn't realize that I needed to judge people for. <laughs> um, but yeah, so throughout the day that's happening. Nick is tuning the drums to his liking and he's a fantastic, he's got a great ear for getting great drum sounds. Um, after that, you know, usually the snake is run. It takes him a couple seconds to set up his, uh, his console. The last tour I did with him, he had an SD 11. So literally just boop, there it is. So once that's done, we'll do, we we would do an onstage line check to make sure everything was in the right spot. You know, Nick would walk out with a guitar and bass and whatever, and we'd make sure things seemed right. Uh, after that, I'll walk out with the mic there's not really a lot of stage volume for the most part, but I'll still ring out the wedges just in case because there are points where they'll pop an ear out to talk to fans when they come on stage or something, and then I'll pump the level of a wedge or something. Uh, so I don't want any any surprises. Uh, after that, then Nick will go out, do his thing for a bit, and yeah, then pop through a quick line check for out front. Band comes out, and then that's that. And then after. After that, shut down the playback computers because uh, Panther is a monitor playback gig. Uh, so shut down the computers, lock the desk, go find some food, maybe take a nap, uh, drop off the guys' packs and in-ears to the dressing room before all that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, yeah, oh, batteries starting to forget the process it's been so long it feels like this is the longest i've sat still in 10 years so yeah your resume shows that you are not somebody that lets a lot of, a lot of uh, grass grow under their feet no i get bored you know, I, i'm constantly tinkering around with with sound stuff like you can't see it in the video because i've got i'm sitting in the bus <laughs> i um, love it i've, I've 
since this is an audio podcast, I'm sitting on a Zoom call with Steve and I've got the virtual background of a, of a bus. So I feel more at home. <laughs> um, but I'm constantly trying trying different microphones in my studio spot. You know, if I know a band owns microphones or their engineer has a certain preference for them, I'll... And I've got most of the standard live, uh, live drum mics and whatnot, you know, the Beta 98 amps, the... 604s, the um, AE3000s. So I'll, I've got my kit, my drum kit back here, and I'll fart around, I'll try and sort of recreate whatever the drummer's got going on, and find the best angles for mics where they're fullest and whatever, and try and bring that to the table. But yeah, I'm constantly making noise. <laughs> Speaking of drum mics, do you have a, a favorite that you like to go to? Like, you know, if you What's the what's the first mics you grab for for like your toms and your snare? So for me, it's like genre specific. Um, if I'm going into a sort of heavy metal, uh, hard rock situation with like a lot of speed or or, or dexterity going on, I'll go for the uh, 98 amps for toms because they're pretty much solid right out of the box. They've got a good top end to them. Really, all I feel like I have to do is pull a little, you know, 800 to 400 down just to get that Tom sound. And it's really minimal effort. The only downside are the mounts because they don't have teeth. So they'll swivel sometime. Uh, snare is beta 57. Uh, I think the only weird thing that I do nowadays is I like a 421 in the kick a lot. Uh, in addition to the 91, just for a little bit, but I like the the last couple gigs I've done front of house for um, have been the majority of the sound is coming from the 421 because I like the papery quality of the top end that comes with it. Um, it's like a lot more talk than it is tick on the on the attack, which I've, I'm starting to prefer over you know typewriter sound, um, and I'm noticing that is becoming a trend in in rock and metal production now for. You know, it's less 8K and more, you know, 3.15, 2K kind of area. So that gets me to that goal faster. I've been messing around with the SE uh, stuff lately. Uh, really good, neutral sounding microphones, um, which I'm all about because there's nothing worse than, as we were talking about before the we started, having too much top end, too much ear piercing quality. Uh, and I find with the C7 stuff, I, I don't have to do as much to it. Though that being said, my current setup uh, in my house is a uh, Bayer M160 on the hats, um, 5781 on top, uh, KSM32 underneath, the 421 in the kick, a 604 on the rack tom, 421, and then KSM137s for overheads. For overheads, yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a Coles forty thirty eight in there, but I'm not taking that on tour. I'm too scared. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully it's heavily insured if you ever do. Yeah, I own a pair. I bought them uh, because I was on the eternal search for a good overhead mic, and I figured that yeah, let's try ribbons. So I tried the AEAs and and um, some. Uh, no, I just tried the AEAs, and then I didn't like the construction of them. I felt that they were not very the type of metal is very thin feeling so then i got the coals and i was like oh my god these things weigh 10 pounds 
yeah, these are awesome. So those became my overheads for a little bit, but now they're more of a, of a sort of like overall room sound kind of thing, but they're killer. But that was my long winded way of answering my go-to drum, drum mics. I don't really have a, a preference. If it's like coated heads and like a slow active rock thing, I'll go for 604s, 904s, because that's, to me, they're kind of like short 421s, and that's kind of the sound. But if I need more attack, more more kind of, there's a lot of stuff happening in the in the region, then I go for the 98s because they've got that extended top end. When we were with, when I, when I was with Fifth Harmony, Michelet, the drummer, she's incredible gospel chops, kind of Berkeley trained musician. And that was all 98s across the board. And then, you know, 57, 57, 81, 81s. That's crazy. Uh, it's for people uh, that might be listening to this that aren't familiar with the 98. Uh, it's a little gooseneck microphone from Sure, And the, the microphone head is not much larger than like a pencil eraser. It's, it's incredibly small. But I think the frequency response on that mic is 20 to 20, which is... It's a condenser mic, yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous that that small little capsule can pick up such full sound. So fun fact, um, maybe you're aware, maybe you're not, the the Beta 91 kick drum mic, if you take the grill off of that, the capsule inside says Beta 98. For people that like using big, big mics on floor toms because they think they're going to get more low end out of it, it's not true because that 91 you have in the kick is also the same thing and it's getting plenty of low end. I can't remember where I read it, but it was it was some somebody much smarter than me writing a blog post about how size of the diaphragm does not equate to more low end or more top end. It's all about construction of the diaphragm. Yeah. Well, I think like DPA is a great example of that too, because they've got the 49. Have you ever worked with a DPA 4099s? Those, the little condensers? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, I, they sound great. They're not my favorite. They, 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 they feel very fragile to me. On, on Disturbed, we use them for our guest string players. So every show during the Sound of Silence, we'll have a, um, a duo from the city come in and a cellist and a violin player to fill in the, um, the string parts of, of that song. And we have the 4099s uh, plugged into uh, Sure Axiant Wireless. And yeah, they sound killer. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, that little wire always makes me nervous. And then you've got to go into the XLR adapter uh, if you're not using uh, the Axiant uh, wireless body packs. And yeah, I'm the same way. I'm like, these things cost a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And I'm afraid I'm going to break them every time I touch them. I'm still very, I think most of us still have a bit of PTSD from the old Sure mini cables that came with the Beta 98 and then the Beta 91s. They used to come with these little mini multi-pin plugs and got real familiar and real sick of the the 48 volt failure on stage when that little cable would get pulled the wrong way or just give up or somebody tripped over it so i think that's that's why i'm not super into the dpa stuff because i see that little cable and i go ptsd is a great way to put it because i can't tell you how many times like a saxophone player had the 
that old cabled 98 and it would pop, you know, as it, as it, yeah. and you're just like, Oh goodness gracious. The worst you're at front of house or monitors and all of a sudden whack. <laughs> yeah. No cables, exactly. bad. Give me a new mic. Go. Yeah. And then out comes a 57 on a stand. And then that's what you get the rest of the show. Exactly. <laughs> Good old 57s. Hey, give me a whole stage of them. They work. Uh, I was listening to, um, signal the noise podcast and they had uh the rolling stones uh front of house engineer i can't i can't remember his name off the top of my head every single mic on his stage no matter what it is is a 57 it's the only thing he uses, and he doesn't use subs for his shows it's all just the the main hangs yep and that blew me away i was just like wow that's insane yeah they the he's been with them forever too and he's um i mean some of the best shows i've ever heard the subs are barely being activated, you know, because, and especially with those new Claire PAs being able to go all the way down to about, I think 35, you're getting a lot of fidelity out of the main hang as it is. And the subs are just there as more of a, an excitement for, for the crowd to sort of fill out that bottom end because those new Claire subs are incredible. You know, on, on disturbed, we only had filling arenas. We only had, I think 10 total. We had four in the air and I think um, four on the ground, maybe, or six on the ground. Yeah, six. And that was more than enough. Yeah, that's the cohesion uh, 18s. And then were yep. you guys on co 12s, cohesion 12s? Yeah, co 10 for outer hangs and co 12s for the main hang. I'm so, I'm so unbelievably jealous. I, I, would sell anything I own or would steal anything I don't own to be able to mix on the co-system uh, in a couple of scenarios. Yeah, man, that's amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit about Disturbed? Uh, let's let's switch gears here. Um, what What is your involvement with the artist when you're setting up for a show? I know you've been with them for a while, so you probably have to go back into the memory banks. But when you first get engaged with Disturbed and you're doing monitors for them, what is your interaction with them like? What are they looking for? What direction are they giving you? Um, take us through some of that. I went into Disturbed completely fresh in the operation. They had just taken, they were just coming off of a five-year hiatus. So they were starting from scratch too. Um, they hadn't played these songs in forever. They're, um, they're uh, show our uh, the input count had increased exponentially since their last show. What, uh, they, I don't mean to interrupt. What what is your input count at? Uh last it was close to seventy between wow. talkbacks, the acoustic segments of the show, and the rising size of the drum set. There are about twenty eight channels coming off the kit. Wow, it's two kick drums, uh, six toms, two sets of hi hats three overheads, ride, um, each kick gets two mics. Um, in addition, we're using triggers, but that's, it's mostly because back where I'm back in monitors, I'm using more trigger for the guys, but out front, uh, Brent Carpenter, who was our, our front of house mixer was, uh, using, using the mics more often. And then the three overheads just for coverage, because there's so much going on up there. Uh, Mike's got, you know, two chinas and and symbols everywhere 
Uh, Nick, the drum tech, he, he's got a big job. And at one point we had two stages. We had an A and B stage. So bless, bless Nick with his two drum kits he had to build. The second kit was not nearly as big, but it was still a five-piece kit with probably about four crashes. But anyway, my my initial involvement was they didn't really know what they wanted. I said, hey, guys. And I, I approached them each individually, introduced myself and said, hey, you know, if there's anything specific you're looking for, you know, let me know. Do you like more of a... Do you like to feel like you're tracking, like like you're living in a live album or... You know, do you want more dryness? And, you know, so John, the bass player, he's like, you know, all I want is my bass, a little bit of click and kick. I just want to, I just want to vibe. Okay. And Dan, the guitar player, uh, he and I had a few, few discussions and it came into me just giving him like a CD mix. So he's got the Haas effect going on with his guitar. So one side, the Haas effect is basically you take one signal split it and delay one side about five to 10 milliseconds and you get width within your uh, in-ear mix. So that's that for him. Uh, Mike, the drummer, is the same way. He, he and Dan have been playing together for 25 years now and it's just him, his drum kit on top, click screaming and... Uh, a little bit of playback, a little bit of vocals, and his vocal mic as well. And then David, David is fun because he he over time has tr- become to trust me almost implicitly to make decisions for him based on what I think he'll like, which is great. Um, so he lives in a lot of reverb, a, a waves doubler to create a little bit of width for him and then just a bed of everything else underneath it. It's all very hi-fi in their, in their in-ears. And um, that, that made it a lot of fun for me because some artists don't want anything. Some, they just want what they hear is what they hear. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Dverb church seems to work on vocalists really well because they, they love that space it creates. And, uh, yeah, so basically it was just getting that and then I had a start template from from Black Label Society because I was going from a profile from Black Label Society and then I was going into a profile on Disturbed and which I was thankfully able to spec for myself because at the time that was what I wanted and I we had a lot of international travel coming up so I said give me a profile cuz I can get that anywhere in the world and so I took that show file and adapted it to Disturbed. It already had all my favorite stuff on the drums. You know, the SSLE channel is my go-to drum channel strip. And I already had some some things ready to go. So that way, when we started line checking, I wasn't sitting with the text dialing it in. It was like, hey, guys, what do you think about this sound already? And they're like, oh, sounds cool. It's huge. I'm like, cool, all right. It's a good start. I'm on the right. I'm on the right path. And then the guys came up, and it was just getting balance and levels together. And it's it hasn't really changed a lot in the last four and a half years. The the guys, um, really the, the like when I jumped from the profile to the SXL off on this last tour cycle, the main note was 
how much better it sounded. And like, wow, this new desk is great. Everything feels more 3D. And I'm like, well, we've got about 10 years worth of uh, advancements going on under the hood here. And we're running at a completely different sample rate. And the guys all have home studios and stuff. So they are, they know when I throw out some technical jargon to them, they're like, oh, what? 96K? That's incredible. Jumping back into the effects loops, yeah. uh, you're using waves, I'm assuming, or you're using the, the effects through the profile? So when I was on the profile, it was waves. It was going you know, internal via the TDM system that was the way of doing things back then. On the SXL, it runs into a extreme server um, because of the cross-platform thing, uh, AAX DSP versus straight AAX. And um, so it's processed externally, but the effects show up within the um, the Avid platform. So I can control them from there, but the processing is like how it, how it was on Digico before Digico offloaded everything. So basically, yeah, I'm, I'm using Waves pretty much... I'm, I'm only really scratching the surface on the Waves stuff because the, the server only meters about 15%. So I'm using it on my sort of money channels, you know, kick, snare, top, snare, bottom, um, the bass inputs, their, uh, the vocals, most of the effects, and then their output processing. That's where the tone really kind of comes in because then I'll take the Q10 and sort of shape the tone to be how they want. For instance, David doesn't like low end at all. So whereas the other guys want, you know, scooped mids and, certain things or, or exploiting where they're losing their hearing a little bit as well, you know, bumping frequencies and certain ranges for them. Um, but yeah, the, the wave server is doing a lot. I'm using, like I mentioned, doubler on the vocal return. I've got, uh, our verb on everybody. Most of the outputs are Q10 into, uh, the API 2500. And the 2500 is not really doing anything. It's there more as a safety, if anything. We're using a lot of, you know, all the all the guitars are are Kemper. The bass is the bass is just just a clean DI and then a distorted DI, and then the playback is about eight to ten channels of stuff. So in case there's you know any of those systems ever lock up and suddenly start shooting out signal, I'm protected. They're protected, and there's no there's no stress. So that is mostly what I'm using it for. I'm not using anything crazy, really. I I know there's guys that completely ignore every channel of the of the console and just use the waves or whatever. Or some people, uh, like Brent, our front of house guy, he's a big DSP guy, so he was just strictly using DSP. And I'm hoping one of these days that uh, Plugin Alliance. We'll hop on and we can use that at uh, on the console as well because the plugin alliance stuff is incredible. I'm a big fan of all of the stuff that between the various companies that uh, Brainworks has brought on board and all of the Brainworks stuff. It's all really solid. But the Wave stuff is is still sort of my my bread and butter for sure. They and they've they've treated me really well as an endorsee. Are you doing anything uh, special for time alignment purposes or, you know, to minimize latency uh, for ears? Because I, uh, they're on in-ears, obviously, uh, and latency is, you know, 
far more obvious in that scenario. So how are you sort of managing that side of things? I'm not. The console uh, has its own delay compensation built in, but that's also why I'm using a lot of the older plugins on things because, I've, and I have it saved, I'm looking at it right now on my computer, the plugin latency list that Waves has up on its uh, on its thing here. So they've got native sound grid. So for instance, the API 2500 at 88.2 to 96K, it says is zero. Based off that, and then all the other ones, I'm not really introducing a lot of latency. Uh, and thankfully, I haven't run into a situation yet where I've had an artist come at me and go, this sounds wrong. I'm not. And I also don't really want to do any of that because delaying everything else to meet that channel would throw other things off as well. Um, for instance, if I were to try and time align the drums to the kick trigger, that's five milliseconds of latency already built in by doing that. So if I was at front of house all day, I would sit there and and figure it out. Um, there's various tools to use to align everything because also sample aligned drums sound great. You know, once you have, you know, I I in Pro Tools I use a program called Auto Align where you say I usually align everything to the snare drum because that's the furthest back instrument usually, and also just the thing that's bleeding into everything. You set that as your side chain send, and then the other plugins or the other instances will measure against that snare drum and line everything up. So when I was with animals as leaders, I you know kept my overheads equidistance from the snare drum and then measured back in the in the control room during rehearsal and nerd it out a little bit to try and get that cohesion going between all the microphones and it sounded huge. It's definitely a fun practice, but it's not something I would do at monitors at all because, you know, five milliseconds of latency or, you know, 10, you know, not good. Yeah. It's going to throw somebody off. Yeah. Uh, what is uh, last question about disturbed? And then I want to jump over to black label society. Um, yeah. Would, what are they using for transmitters uh, uh, for the in-ear system? We're an all sure band. Um, PSM 1000. PSM 1000s. Yep. Those are all, I have every, and I'm also the RF tech on Disturbed. So our entire backline now is Axiant, which is awesome. We have Axiant for all of our mic wireless microphones. Uh, David, the singer, we have three. They're all going into a, a, a three to one switcher. So you've got the main and two spares. One is always on stage. And God forbid I need to hand him that third mic, but it's there just in case. Spares on spares. I can't, don't not have a spare. <laughs> um, so those all go down one channel rather than having a spare channel on the console. That way there's, it's instant. It's, he's, he looks at me, he's maybe spat into that microphone too much and he wants to swap it out. Hit that button, it's instantaneous. In front of house doesn't even have to know. Do you know um, what uh, capsule he's using on those uh, Axiom transmitters? Yeah, so we're currently using the Telefunken M80s, uh, but the plan was to have him try out the M7, the um, the SE. Yep. 
because I feel like that would handle his his sort of upper mid range a little better. I also do the band's uh, post production remixes for television. I've done a couple of their live records as well, and I've found that the Telefunkins are great sounding mics, and it sounds awesome on him. But they do accentuate the sort of 800 1.5k range uh, in not necessarily a pleasing way on his vocal, but. The Telefunken M80 is definitely sort of the active rock microphone right now. And it's for a reason. It's very warm. It's got crystal clear top end that's not offensive when you walk in front of a walk in front of symbols or something. But I think I think we were gonna try the um the SE stuff on the next set of rehearsals, but whenever that happens, yeah, we're back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for that rundown. Um I'm just absolutely unbelievably fascinated by that side of things uh because being out front of house i don't usually get to do too much of monitor world and i love learning what everybody's doing and the tips and tricks um with black label society you actually were responsible for getting them off of wedges and onto in-ears what was that like that was the phone call i had been working for the band black veil brides prior getting involved with Black Label Society and I built them a standalone in-ear rig and they're managed by Blasco who is the same manager for Black Label Society and so I got a phone call uh, in 2013 saying hey remember that rig you built built for Black Veil Brides can you do that for Black Label Society I'm sitting there going, those guys aren't going to want to fart around with an iPad. No way. And he's, and I told Blasco that, and he's like, yeah, you know, we're just trying to get Zach to wear in-ears and stuff. And I'm like thinking in my head about these videos of seeing Zach kick wedges off stage or like throwing guitars at monitor guys, all all this terrible stuff. And I'm like, you want me to do that? Okay. And he's, he's like, well, here, let let me have you talk to the tour manager. And so uh, at the time, it was Boris Balma. And so he and I sat and chatted, and Boris said, well, hey, man, do you think you can do it? You got yourself a gig. And I, I was terrified, you know. Zach Wild, scary guy. Turns out he's a big puppy dog. <laughs> but and I, I mean, that wasn't always the case, but I, I missed the case of day Beck's Zach Wild, and now was dealing with the the sober Zach. Thank God. So anyway, we get to we get to L.A. The rest of the band is into it, and get them all dialed in. Three four days of jamming at mates in L.A., and then finally Zach comes in. He had just gotten done with another tour, and he had just come home from Russia, so he was he was recovering those couple days. So I say, "Hi Zach, I'm Ashton. Here are your in ears." He had no idea. He'd never put a set in his head and ever. And so for the entirety of my three years of working for them, the routine was when it was showtime, I would help Zach put the ears in his head. So I say, so what, what do you want to hear? You know, when you play and he's like, I'm going to do the best Zach Wilde impression I can muster. Let me make sure the recording is really good. Okay. We're good. Okay. Well, Father Ashton, you know, I want it to sound like the garden, but I want it to be empty. I want it to fill out the seats. And I'm like, okay, we can do that. 
So that's where the D-verb church came from. And so I mix it into his voice a little bit, and he's like, more, okay? More. Now he's swimming in it. And I'm like, really? Okay. Hey, can you put that on my guitar too? Yeah, I can do that. Load up a separate instance, stick it in. And the man lived in a sea of reverb, and he would call it the church. And there were the, there were a couple times where, like, I'd be wearing a hoodie or something, flipping through through um, through mixes or something, and my sleeve would get caught on the on the fader, and so the send would get cut off. And he'd look at me and go, "Where's the church?" I'm like, "Shit!" Pop it back in because I was listening to somebody else's mix at the time and missed it or something. So. Um, that was basically it. Once, once we got the church verb dialed in, he loved it. And for the longest time, we also had a set of wedges in front of him as sort of an emergency thing, uh, because, you know, he, he was used to having four wedges in front of him. And then we were in a, a small club somewhere where it was either he had his wedges or he had his ego riser. It couldn't be both due to spacing. And I said, Zach, this is where we're at. And he said, well, I, I need the wedges, right? And I'm like, I'll be honest with you, man. They haven't been on since I've worked for you. And he's like, really? Well, then get rid of them. And ever since then, on Black Label anyway, Zach has not had a wedge in front of him. So oh, That's crazy. That was, that was the end of that. You know, side fills are still blaring. The His guitar rig is still, I mean, it's a JCM 800, but, you know, once you get that sucker to two, it's, mind-meltingly loud but he still had his four cabinets behind him all on so he he wasn't missing anything by not having the wedges there he was still getting plenty of energy energy yeah (laughs) what do you what were you using for a console for that that setup that was an sc48 for pretty much ever and that that was out of necessity just because they play everywhere and anywhere and so when we went to south america and played some of these places we played tbilisi georgia and got the only two profiles in the country you know it was definitely useful to have that consistency because then i could you know load in waves and and whatnot and and yeah you can get you can get a profile anywhere which is great so they're ubiquitous exactly (laughs) man that is that's awesome uh that's a great story and the impression uh i'll give it a (laughs) give it an eight and a half out of ten yeah you know some it's it's all right (laughs) i start talking about mickey mantle and stuff then uh, then i'm fully embodying zach now zach zach's everyone has a story about zach wild at some point every every road guy i've ever met you know who hadn't seen him in a couple years it's like oh my god this one time zach did this did that and i'm like hasn't done anything like that around me he's He's cool. I mean, the man still sends me Christmas cards. I haven't worked for him since 2016. Uh, did I do a show in 17? Can't remember. Anyway, but we we like stay in touch. When he came through on Ozzy, my dad was visiting, and he got us great seats and um, hung out with us before the show and stuff. And I just saw him recently at Nam, and I was sitting talking to some of the guys that still work for him. And Zach walks up behind me. And, Father Ashton, how you doing? It's good to see you. And I'm like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Like, I, I can call him, like, I could call him a, a friend in the industry for sure. He's definitely been one of the most consistently generous and nice dudes. Like, he, 
sends me happy birthday, you know, Christmas cards and stuff. And, and it's texted me a couple of times during all this and funny things, you know, his Instagram is legendary and he's really any different than, than the thing you see on Instagram. He's, he's a great dude. I'm, I'm very thankful to have had that opportunity to work for him for sure. Let's let's transition real quickly here. We're coming up near an hour, and I do want to also talk a little bit about your front of house approach and experience. Sure. Um, I think most recently you've been doing front of house for animals as leaders, and we were talking beforehand. You literally got the call that everything was shut down as you were pulling up to the Palladium. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the things you do at front of house that differ from what you do in monitor world or some how you approach your mix uh, philosophy. My mixed philosophy is if it didn't sound, if it doesn't sound good on a two track back on the bus, then that's the sound that was coming out of the PA. And that's not good. I try to mix balanced. I try to mix based on what I know the tone is and what the instruments sound like in a, in a, in a controlled environment. So basically I, um, um, of the philosophy that I want the PA to work for my mix and not my mix to work for the PA. That being said, you know, if I need to turn the vocals up in, in a small club or something, they're going to get turned up. But I want everything else to be really balanced. Like I'll still put cymbals in a mix in a small room because somebody standing next to the PA, not getting a real line of sight of the drum set isn't going to hear cymbals because they're going to hear everything else happening. So even though, even though maybe where I'm standing in front of house or like where like down center of the PA, you're going to hear stage sound. I'm still going to put stuff in the PA because I want people that don't have that same advantage for line of sight to be able to hear all the nuances and stuff. How do you, how do you manage that? Like if I, cause I've, I've spent, like I mentioned earlier, most of my life in small clubs and yeah. I fought symbols every single show. Like I did everything imaginable to get them out of my mix because they, they make it so awful. What, what's your secret for uh, making that work? Uh, I, I don't know. I do. <laughs> I just, I just turn them up, but I'm also like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty ridiculous with my symbol EQs because you know, I, I'm going to cut high end. I'm going to notch out little intricacies of the symbols. You know, like it's usually around 3K. You want to pull some things out. 500 is always that ugly kind of characteristic. And then, you know, a low pass filter at like 300. So I try and make them inoffensive coming out of the, out of the PA to begin with. And then once everything is going... You know, symbols are rarely ever on top of a mix anyway, so they're they're sitting tucked in there, but they're still in there. Um, I don't know if, if I'm ever in a room where like I just hate the sound of the room, I will not be above putting in ears in and mixing from headphones. You know, I've been in a couple like some really ugly clubs. Like I remember playing Fubar in St. Louis and hating how that sounded, and because it's just a hallway pretty much and you know at some point i was like walking around the room with an ipad at the time i think i was mixing front of house for the metal band attila and 
I was like, you know, it sounds fine out here. Everyone's getting the kick drum, blah, blah, blah. And then I go back, stick my headphones in, and I get my experience. So if it sounds, if, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hardline with things like that. I want, I want consistent everywhere because I try and record every night. You know, I've, I, at least a two track and I want, I don't want it to just be, you know, shells going through that mix. I want it to sound cool. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes I just won't turn the cymbals up that loud, but you know, it, it's, it's a blend. It's a, it's a push and pull sometimes as we, as you and I both know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of compromise. Are you a, are you a left, right mixer? Are you left, right sub? How do you how do you do? Your, I'm uh... I'm left right sub. Uh, I'll I'll do things off a of matrix. You know that way everything is coming in at the same time, and then I have control over it. the 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 practice of doing aux sends doesn't really make a lot of sense because, or like subs on an aux, because you know ninety percent of people are doing their room tuning with a two track with a their favorite song or whatever well that song wasn't you're not you don't have a, a cd with a sub send do you you know that's a left right mix and everything is high passed low passed blah 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 so you're being disingenuous to yourself by using that aux send you know use use the tools available to you if you don't like the low end on something shelve it out, cut it out, pull out that frequency, you know, and then, but having the control over the subs through the matrix allows everything to be time aligned as well, you know, especially in a digital realm, because with an aux end, that introduces a little bit of latency that needs to be compensated for in most cases. So having everything on a matrix end allows everything to show up at the same time and go out at the same time. Uh, and then that allows you to align your subs to the PA in a, in a way that makes sense. Um, but that, that's how I do it. I, because I've come from this sort of studio environment, environment first, that's sort of the mentality I go into it. Um, and they can be, they can be married as a concept for sure, because, you know, me sticking a microphone on a drum set, I'm going to stick it in the same kind of spot live as I do in the studio, because that's what's best for the instrument. Obviously there are compromises that need to be made. Sometimes that there's like a fold back, uh, a monitor nearby or, you know, that it's a tight environment or whatever, but you know, the, the idea of putting a mic, an in, you know, like half an inch above a drum head, when you go back and listen to the multi-track of that back, you know, on the bus or whatever, it didn't sound that good. You know, I want it to sound good going in and, and yeah, I'm, I'm all about getting the tone, right. Getting things, getting things right. And, uh, fooled around with the other way of doing things like gotta get the mics real close and blah, blah, blah. Need more of this, more of that. And don't do this. Don't compress this because it's live. Yeah. Why, why not? You know, but you know, obviously, in some in some clubs, it's going to be a problem. But it's not always because if if you if you get the PA to work for your mix, then that frequency is not going to be an issue unless your singer walks out and 
sticks the mic in front of the PA. That never but happens. Never, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off uh, when like, we start talking about symbols, but is there anything else with your with your front of house mix that you approach or wanted to discuss in in detail? So I used to be the type of guy that would do the the wide guitars on the left, right, and then I realized, oh shit, no one's hearing that. So I've started I've started doing the Haas effect live for um, for especially in the case of like say there's one guitar player. So for when I mixed front of house for POD for a little bit, I did that where for Marco's guitar, I would do, you know, a 12 millisecond delay on one side. And that way everybody heard it, but those who were standing down center still were like, wow, those guitars are, are there's like two guitar players happening right now. Um, that way they're getting sort of the like CD mix. Um, and same with, with, with uh, if there's two guitar players, I'll do, you know, if I'm just getting one signal, say it's a Kemper or something, I'll double double assign that input and delay one to the left and then opposite for the guy on the right. That way there's just this wall of guitars for people, but no one misses anything. You know, it's like dude's playing a guitar solo and you pan it to center, but then you got to pan the other guy to the center too. So it's like, there's not suddenly a hole in the mix. So that's sort of one of the things I do to kind of that I've since grown up into that. Cause at first I was vehemently against that for some reason. I was like, sounds great where I'm standing. But no, it's, you're not there for that. You're there for the audience and it's got to sound great wherever somebody's standing. That's the biggest thing is like the person in the back has got to have the same experience that the person, you know, down by the bar is having or down center. So like, I'm all about front fills. I'm all about coverage, you know, Sometimes we don't always get that, but you can definitely try and tailor your mix to get those results. Or if you're TMing, you know, make sure you put it in your contract that full coverage. And then if you know a club doesn't have it, show expense. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is your, uh, what's your go-to tuning track that you like to use uh, if you're not using multi-tracks when you're, when you're setting up? That's a good question. There's a few. And I'm going to pull open my phone to tell you. I was, I, I was going to narrate that uh, Ashton was reaching for his phone. I'm guessing he's looking at his playlist uh, to see what's it. been played the most. It. So it's Pink Floyd's uh, Coming Back to Life. Um, there is... I don't actually... It's been so long since I've opened it that my iPhone has put it away. Put the, like Has like auto-merged it with something else. So I have to find it again. I'm sorry. It, it's, a lot, it's a lot of the standard songs that people listen to you know i know um for instance marquitis loves his uh uh gwen stefani song hella good yeah hella good that's it um i heard that a few times i'm sure i'm sure um it's a lot of pink floyd steely dan you know i'm guilty of that 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 100 percent helps you clear up your low mids I use a, I use some Pink Floyd for tuning as well. Are you using it? I I love the like the spatial feeling of Pink Floyd's recordings, and I I really think it helps me with my imaging, uh, and like placing things. Do you find that you're doing the same? I use Coming Back to Life uh, more to check alignment of things because there's a cowbell that runs through it. It's on the album Division Bell, and that cowbell has definitely saved me a couple of times when I didn't have like a smart rig or something. And I'm able to kind of hear flamming between things. And then I can tighten that up a bit more. 
um, which is always good. Where the heck is this playlist? Anyway, oh, Faith No, Faith no More's um, Strip Search is another good one. That There's that in there that helps you tighten up your upper upper mids or and beyond a little bit which is nice and it's also got that booming kick drum in there too you know i've definitely been in a club where i'm like oh i'm gonna pull i'm gonna pull 80 back you know which isn't always what you want to do but sometimes it's it's helpful i'll you know i'll throw and then i'll throw in some some modern heavy things to you know, especially if I'm mixing like a heavy band or something to make sure that the sizzle of a guitar isn't going to blast my face off or something. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the clubs that I've had the pleasure of mixing front of house in have been set up really well. Um, I remember once I was at the PlayStation theater, rest in peace. Um, and they had that fantastically set up JBL rig in there. And I was waiting to do line check it's in it's in Times Square in New York City. It's sub level, uh, and it is a fantastically tight room. And I hope it reopens at some point. But they had this fantastically great JBL PA in there, which we can't always say is the case. So I'm all built in front of house. I'm standing there talking to. I just gotten done with a quick line check with the text band is due in about 30 minutes so i'm sitting there talking to the um the band's manager because it's a new york city show the vantage point from front of house isn't that great you've you're kind of tucked back on a on a balcony and so seeing the stage isn't the easiest thing so i didn't realize that the band had come up on deck yet and then all of a sudden they're playing and the band the manager is like can you turn that cd down and i'm like that's the band play <laughs> i'm like that that was one of the, like sort of the best compliments I've ever had. But that room is also fantastically tight. But I had also had to do barely anything to tune the room. You know, it for me it's it's like I like to pull out whistly frequencies. So I'll like I'll go down with a parametric, and if something stands out and whistles at me, I notch that out. Are you traveling with any sort of system processing? Like, are you are you carrying a lake or anything like that? I have, um, but I don't own it, you know, and it's also, it's, it's, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in it, but I can get the basics done. I can, you know, I can time align and I can, you know, get it going, but I don't claim and have not ever taken a system engineer gig because I'm not confident. I won't take gigs that I'm not confident in. Like I actually got a call for a gig yesterday, funny enough. But it was for Ableton playback. I haven't used Ableton in 15 years. And I was like, man, I love you. I would love to do it. But I don't want to put myself in that situation where they need me to do something advanced and I can't do it. So now next up on my list is a rudimentary Ableton refresher course. There's there's a whole YouTube playlist of the newest things. So I've downloaded the trial and I'm going to refamiliarize myself with it immersion immersion learning is sort of the best you know it's sometimes it's oh it's been so long since i've used this console and you have to kind of pull out the spider webs of what you used to do and then after like a day of using it you're like ah, got it no problem it's like riding um, a bike exactly exactly some but sometimes you gotta put the training wheels back on no not really but 
Yeah, I mean the ne- the next thing, the next two things I have on my list are the Dante course, and then I'm going to do the Wave Sound Grid um, certifications. I've been so busy finishing my own band's record, uh, and then I've had a bunch of uh, work doing uh, mixes for Disturbed for the, some of the web uh, live web stuff that some of these festivals are putting out again. Um, that I haven't done what a lot of my friends and, and compatriots have been doing um, in terms of, I see people at least daily post their Dante certification. And I'm like, I should get on that. Well, yeah, we, we went a little bit over we're at an hour and 15 um, real quickly uh, because you are so involved in touring. Do you have any thoughts on when we're going to be able to get back to things or what do you think might be uh, uh, like the, de facto deciding factor for when we are able to get back out. It's, it's going to be down to a course of treatment or a vaccine. You know, the money people know that the, the insurance companies know that um, you're not going to be able to get a group of people into a, into a venue like we have been. And without that, because you're not going to be able to get a show insured, you know, you're not going to be able to, no insurance company in their right mind is going to put a policy on a, on a show with 25,000 people in a room without some sort of backup, you know, cause now, and you know, Americans get bored obviously with States reopening and stuff, but there's still no course of treatment. You know, if you get COVID-19, you write it out at home. And if it gets really bad, you go to the hospital and all they do is help with the underlying stuff. You know, they try and get your blood pressure down. You know, if you develop a bacterial infection, they'll take care of that and they'll try and help you breathe. But there's no like, take this and feel better in a couple of days or take this shot and it kills it immediately. That's not a thing right now. And, and so without that, I don't think we're going to be in a position where we're going to see shows in a normal sense in a while. The show I got offered um, yesterday was for a 500-car drive-up concert. So that might be a thing for a little while. And I know um, some of my friends in, in Los Angeles have been doing uh, sort of webcast shows at a club in L.A. Um, and the protocol for that is it's going to be an adjustment. You know, it's like backline goes up, masks and everything. Then they get off stage. An audio goes up, mics, pins the stage, get off stage. If you line check, wipe down every surface and every microphone that's been touched before the artist goes on, and so on and so forth. So a lot of people are going to be, you know, those bottles of uh, of Listerine and alcohol that you know you would wipe down the capsule of a microphone every once in a while, the grill of a microphone every once in a while, it's going to happen four or five times a day. That's going to be the most spent thing on a rider is bleach and, and, and all that from now on. It's going to be i I'm pretty positive. Unfortunately, that it's going to be a completely different ball game when we get back to it. You know, it's going to be a lot more, it's going to be a lot more work. I think you and I share almost an identical viewpoint on that. I was talking to somebody the other day and you're exactly right. The insurance companies, I think, will dictate when we can go back. And mm-hmm. then the other thing I was talking to the person about was there isn't like a treatment exactly like you said. So 
even if there's a vaccine against it and X number of people decide not to do the vaccine, then what? <laughs> so it's, yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's, and unfortunately with a lot of people, it doesn't affect them until it does. So, you know, if somebody gets sick at one of these shows and the insurance agents, you know, the promoter of the band gets sued for it, um, you know, what then, you know, so no one wants that liability at all. And so if there is a vaccine, unfortunately, I do think there will be the, you know, but there, there will be the sort of checkpoint, you know, do you have your vaccine? But that's not the first time that's happened in the world, you know, like smallpox, like our, our parents and grandparents have the scar on their shoulder from the, yeah. So it's like, it's not the first time that that's happened. And, you know, it's for, in my personal opinion, it's for the betterment of the world because I don't want to get somebody sick. And I myself don't want to get sick. I've, in my early days of touring in a van, I got pneumonia a couple times and bronchitis. So I'm like super sketched out about coming down with this thing. So yeah, you know, it's, it's like, going to be like that unfortunately i think because the insurance companies aren't going to want to let a liability into that environment um and no one will booking agents don't want that venue doesn't want that bands don't want that um i hope at some point as people get exposed to it and stuff it becomes more like the flu where where it still sucks to get it but the immunity level goes down, but because this is brand new and humans have never encountered it before, it's going to take time. And yeah. So in the meantime, wash your hands and stay inside and be safe. <laughs> Sage advice. And I would, I wish we could end there because it would be such a nice tidy ending, but I just wanted to pick your brain <laughs> real quick here again. Yeah. Uh, speaking of streaming, I've been wildly underwhelmed by a lot of streams from major artists. Do you think that the, do you think that that'll be something that we can uh, insert ourselves into and, and get, you know, a better experience for people? I would hope so. I would hope so. I mean, with my experience with doing the work with Disturbed, it's, it's, it's you got to put the effort into it. And some of these streams sound like they're just faders up very, very rudimentary mixes or they're, or they're board mixes. And, you know, sometimes that's telling of, of things, but, I do think now that it's easier and cheaper than ever to make multi-track recordings live. I would hope that the, that the content exists and it's a matter of, I think the other thing is it's a matter of management asking artists if they approve of something before it goes out, because I think most of them would say no. Um, you know, Anytime I get something from Disturbed or, you know, even in the past with Fifth Harmony and stuff, I, when I was working for them, I would do all of their post mixes. So like we did Disney Channel stuff and they're like, well, we can do it. I'm like, band wants me to do it. It's fine. I'll send you stems. And they're like, okay. And then they get them back and they're like, this sounds really good. We had to like fix everything else up. And I'm like, you know, I, I, rem like I mentioned before we were talking, one of my favorite concert videos in recent memory is Woodstock 99 and every band on that sounds incredible and the mix is really good 
And so I always had that in my head that when I hear a band on TV, I want it to sound awesome. I want it to sound like, like the band that I think sounds like. And so, yeah, I mean, I I mixed live records like a record, you know, I, I try and make it sound like the band is playing for you in a room. And then when the crowd needs to be in there, the crowd's there. So I hope I hope that as this is happening, you're going to find more engineers with their backlog of multi-track recordings can go to the band or management and say, hey, I've got this incredible resource for you that could be a money-making potential for both yourselves and me. Here's a proof of concept. Oh man, that sounds awesome. And then it's a matter of finding video to sync it to and stuff. But, you know... It's it's definitely anytime I see a band come out with like a live video and it's just live footage, I kind of get bummed out because I'm like, I want to hear the band live. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope I hope that happens. Um, I was watching something that came out last night. Uh, uh, I'm not going to mention any of the artists, bec- but all three sounded terrible. Oh, it, bummer! Like minimal effort, minimal. You know, it it it's, it sounded terrible. And I'm like, man. I know this band sounds better than that. I know that band sounds better than that. So I, I hope that it becomes a situation where we can use our talents to help further the artists that we work for while also building our resumes up as well be, by diversifying the way we mix sound. You know, sure, we can't mix in a room, but we can mix in Pro Tools or Logic or whatever and provide the fans with the service that we would normally provide, but in a different way. I think that's a really awesome place for us to end here. Uh, I went quite long, but uh, I just got so wrapped up in the discussion and you were so forthcoming with information that the time flew by as it always does, but even more so today. So, (laughs) wow, it's already one. I know it's crazy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So man, thank you so much for uh, jumping on the pod and uh, sharing all of your experiences and thoughts. And um, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's, it's a great way to uh, spend a Saturday. I should probably be on some of those classes, but I feel like I learned more talking to uh, you than (laughs) I will from a, a webinar. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. It's been fun. This is actually the first podcast of of quarantine. People have offered, but it hasn't happened yet. So thanks for having me. Thanks for taking my, popping my podcast cherry. (laughs) I'll get you a a certificate or something that you can display. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. All right, Ashton, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really hope I get to talk with you again soon. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen & Heath D-Live system with Shure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 